what we're really doing is we're addicting audiences to a certain kind of experience. We're, we're addicting them to the experience of being shown something upsetting. Researchers have found that people get a little dopamine rush when they click onto news stories that make them upset in a certain way. And so we've, we've discovered that this is just a great way to make money. We present you with emergency after emergency. We upset you. We show you politically upsetting news. And we show you bad news about people who are out to get you. And you will keep coming back. That's Matt Taibbi. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Matt Taibbi on media, monetizing anger. The current period could be dubbed the age of anger. To drive ratings up and along with them ad revenue, there's nothing like rage. People go to their favorite media outlet as if it were comfort food, where their views are validated and reinforced, and their anger finds a home. Argutainment is the order of the day, and boy, does it pay off. Corporate profits soar. Witness the comments of Leslie Moonves, the former head of CBS, who cynically said, Donald Trump and his campaign may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Man, Moonves continued, who would have expected the ride we're all having now? The money's rolling in. I've never seen anything like this. Bring it on, Donald. Our guest today is Matt Taibbi. He's an award-winning journalist and contributing editor for Rolling Stone. He's the author of many books, including Griftopia and Hate, Inc. He spoke in Berkeley, California. And now, Matt Taibbi. Hate, Inc. is a book that I started writing three years ago. Uh, it's sort of a culmination of my personal experience working in the news media for almost 30 years now and change, you know, sort of dramatic changes that have happened, particularly in the business structure of journalism that I think a lot of people aren't aware of because they don't think of it as a business. They think of it as a public service. But the commercial structure of the news has changed dramatically, and it's had a dramatic impact on all of us because uh, we're watching and uh, reading the news more than we ever have before, but it has a different impact on us than it used to. And this this has to do with the way that the news makes money primarily. And so I'll start at the beginning, uh, sort of the history of um, broadcast media. The first news broadcast, the big news, first big news broadcast in America uh, started in September of 1930 with CBS Radio. And it was, the host was a, an iconic figure named Lowell Thomas, who would become a famous person in the history of American journalism. Have you ever seen those old World War II newsreels. He was the one who had that uh, amazing, iconic voice, you know, American convoy on its way to seize key positions in North Africa. Uh, all those old movie tone newsreels, that was Lowell Thomas. And he was an, an amazing, interesting, perceptive figure, and he noticed something right away about this concept of um, delivering the news to American news audiences. He said later, I quickly discovered that my evening program was a perfect way to make listeners angry. You can step on millions of toes at the same time. He immediately recognized the commercial potential of anger as a, as a motivating factor, and he, in fact, wanted to publish a book of listener letters that was called Making Millions Angry. Um, 
but his sponsors vetoed that approach. His first big sponsor was actually the, the magazine, the Literary Digest. And when he proposed this idea of playing up reader reactions or listener reactions to his broadcast, they said they didn't want to do it. They told him to, quote, play things down the middle. And his publisher, Funk and Wagnalls, they completely rejected the concept of making millions angry. Uh, they, in fact, they took the manuscript and they changed the title to uh, fan mail. They wanted to make it anodyne and lifeless instead of the stimulating title. You know, there's a question of, you know, to the modern sensibility, why would, you, why would you take an interesting title and make it more boring and anodyne? Uh, it's counterintuitive today, but back then there was, a, there was an idea behind it. Uh, he committed early on to that down-the-middle idea. He decided intentionally to deliver the news in this monotone, flat, even, detached voice, and he became very famous for this. And he also became famous for this introduction to his newsreels, which be always began, Good evening, everybody. This is Lowell Thomas. And that signature, Good evening, everybody, was... Uh, something that became standard all across the news business. He he decided that he was going to project to the entire audience, and he also tried intentionally to leave the emotion and the rancor out of his news delivery. He called this uh, letting listeners make up their own minds, and this was a pioneering effort in what later became known as the objective news style. And it's important to understand that this was this was not about ethics. This was about commerce and style. This detached, uh, unemotional, just-the-facts presentation was not about being more even-handed or, or being more objective in terms of gathering news. It was about audience. The commercial considerations of his, um, his sponsors, they didn't want to have um, only Republicans or Democrats, only conservatives or socialists. Uh, the Literary Digest and Ivory Soap and later Boulevard Watches and Sunoco, these were all of his advertisers. They wanted to reach everybody, and they didn't want to forego any part of the audience. And they realized the only, way, the only way they could do that was depersonalizing the news a little bit and ratcheting down the rancor level to a certain degree. And this strategy dominated uh, American journalism for over half a century. And uh, the news business still had lots and lots of problems, and we'll get into some of those. But for a long, long time, this, this style was standard in all of the news, and a lot of us grew up with it. There were anchors like Walter Cronkite and later Dan Rather. They all had that kind of similar monotone delivery. And even though there were profound issues with the news, for instance, it was, it was almost entirely white men, so they missed whole ranges of news stories that were important. They had all kinds of other biases that seeped into their coverage. They were intensely militaristic. Uh, they were patriotic and jingoistic as well. But um, as a style of delivery, they weren't actively seeking to divide their audiences in the way that modern news companies do it. Uh, and the reason was because they, the, the commercial strategy worked back then to try to appeal to everybody. And one of the side benefits of this was that news figures became intensely trusted people in American culture. And going back to the, by the 70s and 80s, anchors uh, in the news media were some of the most trusted people in America. Uh, Gallup, the Gallup polling agency in 1972 took a famous poll and they discovered that Walter Cronkite was the single most trusted person in America. 
13 years later, in 1985, Cronkite still had the polling agency's highest believability rating. So the news wasn't just trusted, it was, it was also a source of contentment and reassurance for people. And it was a collective experience. The news was designed to be something that your entire family could watch. Uh, so you would have your right-wing uncle and your teenager with the Shea t-shirt and uh, your other crazy relatives, and they would all sit around the news at dinner and watch the news together, and somehow that worked. And it didn't mean the news was necessarily good at their jobs, that they were reporting the right things, but it was a collective experience that was designed to be consumed by everybody. And this continued really into the mid-'80s and early-'90s when... As a coincidence, I started going into the business. My father was a reporter, uh, a television reporter. I grew up in journalism. He worked at one of those uh, 70s affiliates with the microphones that were too big, and he had the bad facial hair and all that stuff. Uh, but it was kind of a golden age of American journalism for all the reasons I was sort of listing. But it started to change in the 80s uh, because of three sort of radical, major, sweeping changes that took place in the business that had a profound impact on how uh, the news business made money. And the first one was the development of the 24-hour news cycle. And this technically began in, in uh, January of 1982 when CNN went on the air. At first, it wasn't a true 24-hour cycle. Really, what, what CNN was doing was they were doing a couple of broadcasts a day, but they were replicating it. Uh, 12 times a day or 24 times a day. And so it was, it was sort of a continuous loop of news. We didn't really have the format we have today where it's a constantly evolving process uh, until really the Gulf War was the first story that was a, a nonstop 24-hour news story. But this 24-hour cycle had a profound impact on the business because rather than having to do just one newspaper a day or at most two newscasts a day, suddenly... Uh, people in the news business had to create oceans and oceans of content, uh, and we had never had that problem before. And this this was something that became, that I've watched over the course of my career sort of become an exploding problem. Like, for instance, even just in the last couple of decades, in when I first went on the campaign trail in 2000 and 2004, most of the reporters who were covering presidential candidates they maybe filed once or twice a day at most, and that was a heavy burden for reporters. But you know, by now, most people who are covering presidential campaigns, they're creating some kind of content, probably 13 or you know to 14 times a day. Whether it's you know vlogging, blogging, tweeting, taking little video episodes, putting it on Instagram, all the different platforms. So there's this tremendous pressure to create stuff, and that's not so easy to do when you have to sit down and write and report and do all the research and, and carefully f check all your facts. So this put the business in a serious quandary. What do we do to, to fill all that time? And one of the things that the networks found out really early was that a great way to fill all that, that time was just to put two people on set and have them argue with each other. And this simulated action, I mean, the other great way to do that to fill all that time was to have a breaking visual news story. Like the great, the great uh, classic CNN news story is a baby down a well or a submarine that sunk to the bottom of the ocean. You can put a reporter at the scene of the, of the crime and say, you know, five minutes ago I was told this or that, and there are pictures and it's amazing and it's dramatic. 
Well, that doesn't happen so much, and it's also incredibly expensive. This is one of the problems with the business. You have to send a crew out. You have to get all those pictures back home. You have to edit it. You don't have to do that with arguing. If you just put a couple of people on set and introduce a topic and have them yell and scream at each other, it produces the same impact as uh, dramatic pictures of a sunken submarine or a fire or even combat has. It's conflict. It's, it's raw. It's exciting. And so they started to do that. And then the, the earliest shows were like Crossfire, uh, the McLaughlin group. Arguing became an important form of content. And the second big thing that happened in the business was that distribution stopped being important. Uh, for the longest time, the news business was an easy way to make money. It was, in fact, it was almost impossible to screw it up. If you talk to people who used to be in the news business, if you had a, a license for a radio station or a television station in a local market, it was basically a license to print money. Was, these were scarcity businesses. Uh, there were only so many 30-second uh, advertising slots for each market, and they were like gold. The local businesses needed those ad slots, and there were just not, not enough of them. And so they could charge almost as much as they wanted to, to, to put those ads in the air. Similarly, newspapers had basically a monopoly on wide-scale individual distribution in most of these markets. So the local newspaper, like the New York Times or the Boston Globe or the Houston Chronicle or the LA Times, these news organizations built up their distribution over the course of decades. They had paper kids, distribution points. They had trucks every day. They had printing presses. They were bringing these, these papers all over the, all over the region. And if you have, if you were an employer and you wanted to hire somebody new, the newspaper was the only show in town. You had to put a want ad in the newspaper. There was no other way to reach all those people. And so, again, the newspapers could charge basically whatever they wanted for that. If you wanted to rent out a, an apartment, if you wanted to put um, real estate ads out in, in the newspaper, all that stuff, it was pure gold. It was impossible to screw up. And what happened when the Internet came along was... All that vanished. It, distribution was no longer important. It was, it was essentially meaningless. The same people who had built and invested all this money and time over decades in making sure that they were the only people who could reach all those individual households all across the region, suddenly anybody who had a telephone line uh, could be reached in the same way by Internet carriers. And so the, the distribution was taken over by what we now understand to be internet platforms like Google and Facebook, and well, Facebook came later, but that was this, that was the idea, and so that that easy money disappeared for media businesses, and this created an enormous amount of downward pressure in the business because now now that we're not making easy money, now we're losing all those ads to Craigslist and Backpage and whatever else. The one ads disappeared. The first casualties were. Alternative news weeklies, you might have noticed those, they used to be this thick back in the, in the 80s and 90s. Suddenly they became thinner and thinner and they were giving away the paper. They weren't able to sell them anymore. And all the revenue dried up. And I watched this process personally. When all that easy money started to disappear, the first thing they stopped doing was funding um, lots and lots of investigative reporting because you couldn't afford anymore to have um, individual reporters just assigned to cover, to write one story every six weeks or eight, eight weeks or so. They just had to create too much content. You had to work them harder to make the money. Uh, so we went from being a place where there was a little bit of a sinecure for people who were in the news business. They, they were a little bit closeted from economic pressure. 
Uh, and there were other reasons for that, too, because there, were, there was also an understanding implicitly that media company, that the news didn't have to make money. Uh, if you were a part of a larger media company like CBS or ABC, they were making money doing other things. They were covering sports. They were doing sitcoms or, and other programming. And the original sort of grand bargain of the news as envisaged in the 1934 Communications Act was that newspaper, the media companies would be leased the public airwaves at low cost and in return they would create programming that was, quote, in the public interest. So there was this idea that, yes, we're going to let you make a lot, a lot of money relatively easily doing entertainment and other things and you can sell these ads and it's going to make a lot of money. Um, but you have to do the news and that's got to be in the public interest and don't worry about making money on that. And that's, that's really the way that the news uh, companies thought of it, the media companies thought of it until really the, the mid eighties is when this started to change. And the, the third enormous thing that happened around this time was that Fox came along and Fox was, whatever you want to think about it, it was a brilliant business idea. And this had enormous ramifications for the business because what they discovered, the people who ran that network, they were paying very close attention to phenomena like afternoon talk radio in the New York City area where they had people like Bob Grant on, who was one of the earliest sort of progenitors to Rush Limbaugh. And they, these afternoon uh, stations, they figured out that there was a, a, an audience out there of largely sort of middle-class white men who were working, and they, they were a captive audience as long as you fed them a certain kind of content that was politicized and slanted in a certain direction and appealed to their viewpoint in the world. But you could keep that audience relatively stable as long as you kept feeding them a certain kind of story over and over again. And Fox saw that that dynamic worked on radio, and they replicated it on television. They, you know, if you look back at the early days of Fox, they they weren't like they were today. They were, they were originally just trying to be more outrageous and. And um, there was supposed to be more pomp. The, the, the anchors, they had blown out hair and, and chandelier earrings and a crazy look. And the, the stories were shorter and more sensationalistic. But then um, that wasn't enough. Over time, they realized that there was another way that they could, they could beef up ratings. And that was to, to inject more slant into what they were doing. And this was, this came, in conjunction with the explosion of the internet, suddenly they weren't just competing against three other news channels. There were thousands and thousands of, of other outlets that they had to compete with, not just all the other cable channels. It wasn't just news. It was also the Food Network and MTV and all those other channels. But they also had to compete with everybody who was on the internet, whether it was Sasquatch sites or sports sites or whatever it was. You suddenly had pornography. They, they had to compete for attention more than uh, news companies ever had to before. And so they were more outrageous and they were more concentrated. Again, the old strategy used to be, we're going to hunt for the whole audience. Good, good evening, everybody. But Fox decided, why bother? Why go through the trouble of hunting for the whole audience when we're not going to get the whole audience anymore? Let's identify a demographic and dominate it. And that'll be an easier way to make money. And they did. And what they did is they, they picked out a, a specific audience 
the, the early Fox chief, Roger Ailes. I'm sure you're all familiar with, with who that is, instead sort of a notorious figure in the history of American media. He famously identified his audience as, as 55 to dead. Uh, and they knew that they had an older, mostly suburban and not, you know, sort of non-urban audience that was conservative, that had certain views politically, and they didn't make up, make stuff up. They just very, very cheerfully, carefully chose the content in a way that they knew that was going to appeal to the, to the, the political uh, point of view and the prejudices of that particular audience. And so they started feeding them all kinds of stories that they knew was going to get them to come back. This particularly accelerated during the Clinton years. You know, they knew that if they just played an endless loop of Hillary Clinton saying that she wasn't going to bake cookies and stand by her man like Tammy Wynette, then that was going to make all the, the, this audience very angry. What's wrong with Tammy Wynette, they, they would say. And they captured and dominated that particular demographic and they went to the top of the cable ratings in the late 90s, uh, particularly during the, the Lewinsky scandal, which was really it was a, it was a, it was sort of a, a conflagration of all these different factors ha- happening at once because it was a 24-hour news story um, that, was, that was happening continuously. And all the, different, all the news stations designed programming around the, the early Clinton impeachment scandal and initially, and if you, people go back and look, they'll see that Keith Oberman and MSNBC actually got their start during this time. This is when MSNBC first became a real important news voice. But it, they weren't selling slant in the same way that Fox was. They were just trying to sell people on the idea that impeachment was an important breaking news story where the presidency was hanging by a thread and you better tune in because you might at any moment miss the end of a, of a presidency. But Fox added a twist. They, they cartoonized the characters. They villainized the characters. They openly rooted for, for the impeachment process against Clinton. And this rocketed them to the top of the ratings. Rather than sharing the entire conservative demographic with three other big networks, they snatched it all away from, from CNN and, and MSNBC and from the three uh, traditional news networks, and they stayed at the top of the ratings of the, of the primetime cable ratings for nearly two decades. And they took over the top spot, and they didn't relinquish it until 2017, when they bri- when briefly, I think it was in April or May of 2017, MSNBC briefly took the top spot away, back away from them. It's about this moment in American media history when we kind of foxified the entire news landscape. And there were a couple of things that were happening in the commercial news business at this time that were really important. One was Donald Trump. And Trump is an amazing development in the history of American media because uh, and I, I covered Donald Trump's presidential campaign. There, was, there were a couple of things that happened right away that had a profound impact on the business. The first was that he started making everybody tons and tons of money. Uh, even moribund news agencies and newspapers, which had seen declines in revenue uh, and subscriptions, suddenly they were just exploding with revenue. All you had to do to get, get clicks and eyeballs and ratings back then was put Donald Trump on TV. Uh, people might remember that in the early days of the presidential race in 2015 and 2016, 
We had scenes where we would show a, literally an empty podium waiting for Donald Trump to come on the air because that got better ratings than any other thing you could show from the presidential election. And this was a much-discussed topic among uh, campaign reporters. We all were cognizant of it, this idea that, yeah, you know, this guy is, is making us money, you know? Like, he's, the bosses love him. They want more Trump, Trump stories. And this is an important dynamic that Noam Chomsky discussed in his book, Manufacturing Consent. One of the things that Noam Chomsky talked about in Manufacturing Consent and his, his co-author, Edward Herman, is that you don't really have to consciously tell reporters what is and is not a story. They pick up those signals all by themselves. It's a silent process. We learn just from being in the business what our editors and our want and, by extension, what their bosses want. And so, for instance... Back in the 80s, uh, when being anti-communist was an important uh, part of the media experience, if, if, for instance, a Polish priest was killed by communists, uh, it, reporters instantaneously understood that that was a story that our bosses would want to hype. But conversely, if a Catholic priest in, was killed in Central America by uh, death squads in El Salvador or by some other American client state, we also sort of implicitly understood that they didn't want that story. And so the people who understood this best, these dynamics best, silently, without being told, they were the ones who tended to be promoted in the media business. And the ones who raised a ruckus about it, uh, they got reputations for being difficult people and they washed out of the business quickly. And so this, con this notion of picking up on the unconscious signals of what bosses want commercially uh, both commercially and politically in the business is a very important one that's still true today. And this this really shone through with, with Trump because when Trump came along, without being told, everybody flocked to Donald Trump. Even the people who, who were repulsed by him, they understood that he was a great story and, and that he was going to be great for the news business. And so we gave him tons and tons of coverage. And initially, I think a lot of people in the press corps thought that this was going to be just a fad, that it was going to be something that was a, a curiosity uh, that would fade away uh, as people got closer to the real votes in Iowa and New Hampshire, that they would come to their senses and, and would stop voting, uh, stop paying attention to Donald Trump. But there was never a moment in time where we stopped giving them all this coverage. And so Trump, sort of against all the pundit predictions, he he started to do well. And so all, all the, the campaign reporters were sort of shocked when I think largely on the strength of the unearned uh, free billions of dollars of coverage that, that they had given Trump in early uh, in 2015 and in early 2016, he started to win all these primaries. And then when he became the nominee, there was a, a sort of a collective panic that came over the business. I remember some of these conversations. And so the networks made a, what a and all, in fact, all of the media companies made what I think was kind of a cynical decision. And you started to see the outlines of it in the summer of 2016. There was a, an editorial in the New York Times by a, a writer named Jim Rutenberg, and it was called... Um, Trump is testing the norms of objectivity in journalism. And the premise of this article was that Trump was so potentially dangerous, he was such a unique threat 
to the country uh, that we had to change the way we did business as reporters. And he wrote, if you believe that he was that dangerous, you would move closer than you've ever been to being oppositional. Then he wrote, it is journalism's true jo- job to be true to the readers and viewers and true to the facts in a way that will stand up to history's judgment. Then he quoted the Times senior editor for politics, Carolyn Ryan, who said that this this figure demanded copious coverage and aggressive coverage. Uh, she added that, I'm uh, sorry, he added that Clinton and Hillary Clinton, meanwhile, warrants scrutiny, but the candidates do not produce news at the same rate. All the news companies started taking the same approach, copious coverage and aggressive coverage. And on the surface, this sounds like it makes sense. We think this person is a threat, so we're going to aggressively cover this person all the time. But essentially what they were doing is they were replacing a million hours of Donald Trump with a million hours of Donald Trump is bad. Uh, they were just adding a little bit of slant to it uh, to justify the fact that they were just still putting this person on the air. You're listening to Matt Taibbi on Media, Monetizing Anger. This is Independent Alternative Radio. And so the news landscape became essentially reconfigured. Donald Trump was at the center of both the Fox uh, sort of model of covering the news, but it was also at the center of CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times and the Washington Post and the whole sort of Northeast Corridor of American quote-unquote liberal media. They were all just putting Donald Trump front and center basically 100% of the time in political media. And essentially what they were doing is they were identifying pro-Trump audiences and anti-Trump audiences and just feeding those respective demographics content accordingly. And I, I remember seeing this and thinking, that this, is, this is not going to work because the old concept of trying to reach everybody had essentially vanished. We had replaced that with political coverage that was based around the idea that we were going to give constant play to this intensely polarizing figure uh, about whom you could not have a neutral uh, idea. And we had two islands of different media. There was, there was blue state media, which constantly gave you bad news about Trump and Republicans, and then there was red state media, which was following its old formula of just giving people constantly bad news about uh, progressives and liberals and Democrats. And problematically, this, this worked as a commercial formula. In the first year of Donald Trump's presidency, CNN made a billion dollars in, in profits. Overall, cable profits have gone up across the board, uh, somewhere between 35 and 40 percent since Donald Trump first announced uh, his run for the presidency in 2015. And so even though the news agencies have adopted this ethos of democracy dies in darkness, where the, where the, the first front and the vanguard against Donald Trump, I guarantee you on the executive level, this works for them as, as a formula to continue putting Donald Trump on air and making money that way. And so it, it doubles as that. And this wasn't just a slight change in, in response to Trump. It was the culmination of decades of developments in the business that had been pushing us in this direction. And we have developed um, a, a certain style. It's like a flow chart that we put uh, news consumers through that prepares them for the experience of this kind of media that's so different from what it used to be. And 
What we're really doing is we're addicting audiences to a certain kind of experience. We're, we're addicting them to the experience of being shown something upsetting, uh, and we're showing you a scary story, an emergency, and then we're feeding you micro doses of reassurance and promises of solidarity in the, com- in the content. So if you're watching news about Donald Trump, here's something scary, here's something terrible, but here we're, we're going to show you a, a panelist who has a solution to this problem, and, and this is going to be a person you like as, a person, as opposed to the person you hate, and that's going to make you feel better about the terrible thing that we just showed you. And this turns out to be an addicting experience for people. Researchers have found that people get a little dopamine rush when they click on to news stories that make them upset in a certain way. And so we've, we've discovered that this is just a great way to make money. We present you with emergency after emergency. We upset you. We show you politically upsetting news. And we show you bad news about people who are out to get you. And you will keep coming back. And that's what we've discovered uh, in this era of, of the press. Which, And this is different from the way we used to think, think of the news as broadcasting to the entire audience. Now we want the right-wing uncle angry at the kid in the Shea t-shirt. We want them in separate rooms, watching separate media, watching different sets of ads. And that will make more money than the old formula. Over the years I, uh, of being in the business and watching all these changes... I, I sort of collected a bunch of um, sort of principles of how, how this new format of news works as opposed to what it was when I was first entering the business. And I, in the book, I call it the 10 rules of hate uh, because we're, there's a formula to how to produce divisive content. And I'll just, I'll just go through them really quickly. The first one is that there's only two political ideas out there. Uh, and this is something that people learn early when they, when they have their news experience in America. There's liberals and Democrats, there's blue and red, and there's nothing else in the news landscape. If you pick up a major American newspaper, the op-ed section, you'll find a Republican and a Democrat. You'll find, you know, it might be uh, Nick Kristof on the one hand and Brett Stevens on the other. And that's our idea of intellectual diversity. There's one or the other, but we don't show you anything else. We, the, the non-voter is not represented. The democratic socialist is not represented. The anarchist is not represented. The person who just kind of hates everybody uh, isn't represented. Those people don't exist in the news media. You, we tell you that there are only two identities to have, and roughly speaking, most people identify with one side or the other, even if they don't exactly fall into those categories. And so that's important because we're training people to look at the news in the same way that they look at sports. We want you to pick one team or the other team and root. The other idea, these two ideas are in permanent conflict. They can, must never come to an accommodation. This is a, this is a constant. They discovered with Crossfire early on, in fact, there was a show uh, in the early uh, iterations of Crossfire where I think it was Pat Buchanan, I forget who the other person was, they, they actually agreed about, they were at the, the broadcast was about the Lockerbie disaster uh, in Scotland, a terrorist act, and the two guys had the same opinion on, on the, the, the news uh, that had developed that day, and the show was a total dud, and they just never replicated that again. Uh, and so, so they've... They've created the illusion that there must never be an accommodation between left and right. Now, of course, there are profound political differences in this country, 
But that doesn't mean that people in real life can't actually work things out and respect other people, or their, or the, uh, the other's opinion, but you won't see that represented on television or in the newspapers. That's an important concept. You'll always see them arguing and yelling past each other, and they never find a way to agree. They just move on to the next thing. Another important thing, hate people, not institutions. If you, if you, this is another reason that Donald Trump is a perfect news story, because it's about a personality. It's not about the Pentagon or the Fed or Wall Street or uh, institutional power. It's not about the bipartisan corruption in Washington, something you have to think about, the sort of constant, never-ending structural issues in politics in, in this country. We show you personalities because they're easy to either identify with or hate, uh, and that trains people to not think about institutional problems, bipartisan problems, and that, that sort of thing. And it's much easier to just think about people and personalities. Everything is someone else's fault. Uh, the, there are no problems that take place that we show you on TV that aren't also attached to blame of a, of a political party or a person. So when you see a, a problem that's described in news media, almost inevitably we show you the, that one or the other political party is to blame for it. You almost never see bipartisan political problems discussed on the news. Uh, and this is something that I, I noticed very graphically with the financial services industry, financial crash of 2008. Both parties had a very equal share in a lot of the reasons why that crash happened, but that story doesn't really work. Like if, you, if we can't blame it on one side or the other, it's just too hard to market in modern news media, so we just don't do those stories as a rule. And we commoditize it. So if we, you might have the same issue, but two different networks will have different takes on it. So immigration is a story that Fox covers one way and MSNBC covers another way. Um, but they will only show a certain aspect of it because that's what their demographics want. And similarly, uh, nothing is everybody's fault. Everything is someone's fault. Nothing is everyone's fault. And this is what I was saying before. We never show stories that are broad-ranging stories that everybody has a share in, including our audiences. We almost never tell our audiences, hey, you, you caused this. You voted for the people who did this. That's something you almost never see on television anymore. Root, don't think is another thing. That's an important concept. We want people to be emotionally invested in what's going on in the news these days. We don't want them to think through the causes and think through concrete uh, reasonable, logical solutions. We just want them to be angry about it. So we constantly show you things that are going to be upsetting to you, that make you say, God, what are, what are those people doing today? But we want you to treat it like sports, we, because sports works uh, as, a, as a commercial formula. In fact, if you watch the news, uh, especially election coverage, it's almost exactly ripped off from the way that we cover sports. And the sets are almost exactly the same. NFL Sunday Countdown is the model for election coverages uh, in this country. You have the anchor on one side. You have a, uh, a commentator who hypes up one team on this side of the podium, on the side of the set, and then another one on the far end. Um, we have maps who are telling you what the score is constantly. We even have, we even borrow the same jargon when we talk about uh, elections nowadays. We have a magic number of delegates. Uh, we have post-game commentary. 
where you have somebody, you know, after the debates who, who goes after the, the candidates and says, you ask them who, who they think won and who didn't win. All this stuff is, is stolen directly from sports coverage because we want you to consume politics the same way that you, that you watch football uh, because it's a very selling commercial formula. Another important concept, no switching sides. If you are identified as a Democrat pundit, you can never appear as a Republican. You can never hype up a Republican idea or anything that's just sort of not mainstream Democrat idea and vice versa. It's the same concept of when you sell a consumer product, and the news is a consumer product. People have to remember this. If you have a Big Mac one day, it, you know, five years from now, a Big Mac has to taste like a Big Mac. If you take a drag of a Camel cigarette, it can't taste like strawberries once. Uh, people become addicted to the predictability of the consumer experience. And so when you turn on MSNBC, you must get the same thing every single time. You can't get people changing their minds about things. And so that's why there's a tremendous emphasis on people who have predictable political opinions uh, on, on commercial media. You almost never see a thoughtful approach or somebody entertaining two different concepts at the same time. Uh, there, it's always a hot take, and it's, it's generally pretty predictable. And then the other thing is this concept, I talk about it, I call it the other side is literally Hitler. Uh, and one of the things that happens with addictive experiences, and the news is definitely that nowadays, I think, for a lot of people, is that you have to constantly up the ante to get people to feel the same level of commitment to what they're watching. And so if you watch the early Glenn Beck broadcasts, yeah, he had some pretty zany ideas, but pretty soon you had to keep ratcheting up the rhetoric to get people to come, keep coming back. And so Barack Obama wasn't just a socialist. He wasn't just a communist. Pretty soon he was Hitler. Uh, eventually he became Hitler and Stalin. Uh, and, and then you had to start presenting consp you know, in crazy conspiracies. This was, you know, it was the Bilderbergs. It was the, you know, the, the Rothschilds and Hitler and Stalin and, and, you know, Trotsky all, all at once. And this is an inevitable consequence of keeping selling people on the anger experience. You have to just keep making them think that, that a worse and worse thing is constantly happening. And the problem with this is that people start to take it literally. I think Fox, uh, a lot of their anchors started to flirt with a lot of this, this rhetoric in the early and mid-2000s. During the Iraq war experience, you might remember, like Sean Hannity had a, a book that was uh, subtitled Defeating Terrorism, Despotism, and Liberalism. So, so they were telling people that, you know, your next-door neighbor who, you know, who voted Democratic wasn't just uh, a liberal. This person was literally a terrorist, right? And so uh, this person was literally in league with, with bin Laden. They were, um, they were not just different. They were evil. And... This was originally sort of a marketing technique, right? It was just a way to make, to create audience solidarity with a right-wing audience. And I think for the people who were using these techniques at first, it was, uh, I don't think they thought a lot about it. It was just something to do to try to get audiences to coming back. But for audiences, you know, a certain percentage of people were going to actually believe that. Um, and they were going to start looking at their neighbors in ways that they had never looked at them before. And, uh, and they were going to be disappointed when it turned out that, you know, people like Glenn Beck didn't really think that way about their, about their neighbors, right? So they, they would, 
inevitably turn to people who were more sincere in their belief uh, in the uh, iniquity and evil of the other, right? So the, there's always a progression from the person who is a little bit crazy to the person is, who's pretty overtly crazy to the person who's really, really crazy. And that's how you end up going from Rush Limbaugh to, uh, to Glenn Beck to, to Alex Jones, and then there's a whole galaxy of people now. But we're beginning to see the outlines of some of that same behavior now uh, on uh, sort of the other side, uh, where you know, we've gone from saying Donald Trump is just a, a te- you know a terrible figure. Uh, they pretty pretty early on settled on the Hitler comparisons, and then uh, it became sort of sort of de rigueur in the, in the press to use those. And this is something we always tried to shy away from. Uh, you know, there was Godwin's law, this idea that you know, rhetorically, once you invoke Hitler, there's nowhere to go. Um, but they've, they've thrown that all the wayside. And now, magically, Trump is both Hitler and essentially Stalin at the same time. Uh, he's, you know, he's a Putin a, a spy and he's Hitler. And we're ratcheting up this rhetoric constantly, uh, because it works, you know, as, as it's a, a certain kind of programming that, that makes people come back. Similarly, you know, in the fight against Hitler, everything is permitted is something that you see in the press once you identify somebody as literally a terrorist or literally, you know, um, a genocidal murderer, then you'll start to see what's what's happening with the press now. There were headlines in The Guardian um, after Trump was elected, you know, civility was it was a thing that you actually saw in the press, this idea that we were going to start using profanity all the time, which is very ironic to me because that was something I had to work out of my own work as a young person. Uh, now everything's trending in the other direction. We're ratcheting up that kind of language constantly, and we're telling audiences that not only is it not bad, but that, that it's actually very, very appropriate, that they should not just feel a certain level of anger, but they should constantly express it. And maybe not only that, maybe you should go and you know bother somebody in a restaurant. You should tell them exactly what they feel. Maybe they're not entitled to actually eat in a restaurant if they vote for Donald Trump, you know, you know, and vice versa. The same thing goes on with Fox News. And I think this is the the problem that I have with this is that I don't think it's pure politics. I think this is a lot of commerce going on with this. That that we're we're using these techniques and we're ratcheting up the rhetoric because we know that it'll get people to come back. Lastly, the whole idea of a lot of this is to make people feel superior. All right. We are constantly telling you negative things about another group. And you know, Fox pioneered this again by directing it towards liberals or foreigners or minorities or whatever it was. We, we, we want you, we're going to show you all these things that are going to upset you, but, we're, we're, but the subtext of these stories always is that look at the way these people live. You're really better than that. And that's not just in the news. That's in almost all media. Like, why do you think reality shows are just this endless cavalcade of losers who will eat bugs for money and do all these humiliating things? Because we we want audiences to feel that they're better than the people that they're watching on TV. And we know that they will, they will become addicted to that experience of feeling that they're better than somebody. And uh, like I know a reporter... Uh, in researching this book, I met a reporter who covered crime in a small town in Montana, and he talked about how 
You know, he had the worst beat in journalism, which is to cover small-town crime. They would send him out to the courts, and he would write up things like, you know, a mother arrested for shoplifting from a, a Walmart or, you know, groceries, something like that, or some small-town mentally ill person who commits an assault on the street. And very often these people are just charged. They're not actually guilty. We'll put their faces on TV. We'll identify them as people who are arrested for you know, whatever, whether it's domestic violence or shoplifting or whatever it is, we don't care that they're never going to get a job again after we do that. Um, even if they're not convicted, that, that'll be on the Internet forever. It'll be attached to their names forever. So what? Um, and this reporter started to feel guilty about it, and he went to his editor and said, look, you know, I went to the court to say, there's just nothing, there's no murders happening. These are just ordinary people down on their luck, and they're getting arrested for little things. Do we really need to do this? And he was told, look, if it's, if the story's not there, find it, right? And this is essentially the problem of our business, which is that even when something that's not worth freaking out about, um, uh, hap- when, when that's not out there, we're sort of commanded implicitly to go find that content. And inevitably, it's, it's content like this. I mean, this is what he was talking about is the most graphic form of this kind of manipulative journalism, where we're finding people who are lower than you, and we're showing you pictures of it, and they have, they have ugly tattoos, or they're, they're poor, or whatever it is, they have no teeth. Uh, that's the kind of content that we, we show over and over again. Um, and if we're not doing it with crime, we're doing it with politics, we're showing you people who have, who have wrong opinions, who are uneducated. Um, and this is, this is sort of what most, most news content is based around these days. And the, the whole subtext of it is we want people to feel reassured about themselves when they watch the news. We want them to feel superior. We want them to feel like they have the right opinions. So we're showing you the bad thing. We're showing you the, the, the ugly thing. And then we're telling you that by agreeing with the people who are on the podium that you are on the right side, that you're, you're, you're the beautiful people. And that's really what this experience is all about. And it's so different from the way it used to be. Um, and again, the, the press was... N- by no means a panacea before, but we just never had this dynamic before uh, of you're tuning in to, to, to feel superior to the people who live next door to you. And the last thing I sort of wanted to, cl- in closing, there, there's a famous Franz Kafka story, there's a sort of parable of, of before the law. I don't know if everyone's ever, ever read this, but it's a famous story that Kafka wrote about uh, a man who goes to um, he, he goes in search of the law of, of eternal truth and he finds a guardian there and he seeks entry and the guardian says um, you know, there is no entry to the law and beyond me there's nothing but other guardians who are more powerful than me you, you won't have access uh, to the truth and to the law um, if, if, even if you get past me you'll never succeed and the, the man decides to wait and ultimately, at the very end of his life, he, the, the guardian tells him, oh, by the way, this door was just created just for you, right? Uh, and I think the, the whole idea of this is that a lot of us, we, like what Kafka was saying was more about life. Like when we try to seek truth or reassurance or happiness or whatever it is, we often build things up in our mind um, that are obstacles 
to feeling better about things. We, we tell, us, tell ourselves that there are these great barriers to truth and reassurance and feeling good and feeling happy. And then at the end, it turns out that we impose those barriers on ourselves. And I think what people don't understand about the news media in modern times is that it's essentially an individualized consumer experience. Like, you got to the point where you're watching this depressing, innervating thing on, on the news because you've created a tableau for yourself over the course of your whole lifetime of watching the news. You have habits that you've developed individually that the Internet now pushes towards you. And if you believe a certain thing, they'll now, they'll now direct you to certain sites, and you're the only person in the world who has those particular habits. And uh, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the news experience makes us unhappy, it makes us hate other people, and it makes us feel hopeless and powerless. Um, but we can change that ourselves, really just by turning it off. Uh, and this is what they don't tell you. That's the last deception in the news media. They don't tell you that it's okay to turn it off. This used to be an implicit part of the news experience. You know, when, when Walter Cronkite used to say, and that's the way it is, he was giving you permission to kind of turn the news off for a day, and the world was going to kind of hold on until the next day, and that was okay, right? And that's what we don't tell you these days. We're just throwing emergencies at you and making you feel like you you got to keep watching over and over again. It's not true, you know? And I came to this realization that even the stuff that I do for a living was just making people unhappy, um, and it's not always educational. I think it's it's something we have to understand we have to understand the media as a consumer experience that we're choosing for ourselves, and we have to be conscious of it in the same way we would be about eating fast food or cigarettes or, uh, or candy bars. It can be bad for you in the same way all those other things are. And, and so in closing, I just sort of would, would ask people to be, be concerned and, and to think about what they're putting into their brains in the same way that they think about what you're putting into your bodies, and uh, things aren't as bad as they seem or as, as we're telling you. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for, for coming out here. That was Matt Taibbi on Media, Monetizing Anger. He spoke in Berkeley, California. Matt Taibbi is an award-winning journalist and a contributing editor for Rolling Stone. He's the author of many books, including Griftopia and Hate, Inc. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Over the years, we've done many programs on the media, featuring Noam Chomsky, Jeremy Scahill, Ben Bagdikian, Barbara Ehrenreich, and Abby Martin. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to KPFA. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.